The war drums continue to beat in the Indo-Pacific, and the great litmus test to understand just how far things are progressing would be Japan. Japan, for the first time since the Cold War, has begun nationwide drills to prepare and protect their people from the imminent incoming missile strikes. At the same time, Australia, the United States, and the UK have left France out in the cold as they created the AUKUS. Now, if you want to know what France really thinks about it, all you have to do is add an F to that acronym. Hey, it's Lucas Scrobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Scrobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. Episode 258, coming to you late in the evening of September 19th, 2021, from the heart of the Middle East. And as I said, things are continuing to heat up in the Indo-Pacific region, and we can witness it directly when we look at the the steps that Japan is beginning to take to defend itself against not only China, but North Korea. But who are they more concerned about? They are more concerned about China, as is the rest of the world. We talked about this in the previous episode, how America has begun to withdraw from the Middle East. Now, You might be saying, well, of course they are. I mean, I've been reading the news and following your podcast for the last month. Yeah, we all know that they withdrew out of Afghanistan, but their eyes have shifted. I know that President Joe Biden kept on in in his speeches when he's talking about we we need to focus elsewhere. He kept on talking about Al-Shabaab and North Africa and all these other terrorist organizations. But there's also the increasing threat of China, and that seems to be where their eyes are focusing as America even began to withdraw uh, missile batteries, defense systems from Saudi Arabia, one of America's closest allies in the Middle East. In a time where Iran is growing in power, in a time where Iran is still in a proxy war with Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia is the power balance or the holding and stabilizing if that's a word, stabilizing the region right now in the Middle East. But they've pulled out those batteries, as we talked about in the previous episode, because they're beginning to focus elsewhere. And where is that elsewhere? That elsewhere is the South Pacific. That elsewhere is China. China, China, China. As our dear, beloved President Donald Trump belated, how would you say, who has been in the past, former President Donald Trump, we used to say. China, 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 China. I have to have my China. (laughs) Oh, Trump. We miss him saying China. Well, here is a clip from CNN talking just about China, China, China. But it starts with uh, North Korea. So beware. For years, North Korean missiles have posed a serious threat to Japan's national security. That threat hasn't gone away. Recently, North Korea has test-fired several missiles, including long-range cruise missiles capable of striking almost any potential target in Japan. And even more concerning, ballistic missiles that on Wednesday fell into the waters between Japan and the Korean Peninsula. While Japan's defense... Now, this, of course, North Korea is a big deal. They've been 
they've been pushing and, and definitely beating the war drums for decades now. North Korea relies heavily on China. China is one of the biggest aids to North Korea as North Korea is just in complete shambles. They're, I don't even know if you could say they have an economy. They're just a, a total wreck. Now, China wants to keep North Korea wrangled in. So it seems that China is a little bit of a, a counterpoint to North Korea because China doesn't want to get involved and, and tied into a conflict involving North Korea. They are looking to establish their world dominance. They are looking to establish global dominance, primarily, first and foremost, through economics, through trade. And that is what they're doing across the globe. They have opened up, uh, fully admitted, and brought in Iran as a full member of the SCO. They have invited 33 Latin American countries to be part of the Eurasia African Americans New Silk Road. China is ex has been and is continuing to expand, but it seems that there are other threats on the horizon that maybe aren't so public that is really catching the attention of the West, of America, of Australia, of the UK, enough for them to cut out France from a deal of a billion dollars of, of defense contracts with Australia to counter China. Now, here is a clip by CNN, uh, the, the clip that we've been playing. The clip goes on where the defense minister of Japan is talking about why they are concerned and how China is beginning to provoke Japan. Defense Minister Nobuo Kishi says the ongoing hostility from North Korea is a big challenge. He says it isn't Japan's biggest security concern. As Japan's Minister of Defense, what threat keeps you up at night? China has been regularly challenging Japan's territorial integrity. These actions are making it a fait accompli. In response to such moves, we have to demonstrate our will to protect the lives of Japanese citizens, as well as their livelihoods and our territory. The inherent And they go on in this clip with CNN to talk about a, a small island chain near Taiwan. Taiwan, which has also been in the news and a question that people have been raising. Will America abandon Taiwan too? America didn't fully abandon, but really didn't do much when uh, during the Hong Kong protests as Hong Kongers proudly was waving the American flag, uh, crying for liberty and freedom. Uh, will America abandon Taiwan as America has pulled out of Afghanistan? And it seems to be abandoning uh, and burning bridges right and left. Well, one of the bridges that America has seemingly recently burned is with France, America, one of America's oldest allies. Over a hundred years, America and France have been strong allies. But in this AUKUS deal, this Australia-UK-US deal, they, America pushed for Australia to cut France out of a 90 billion Australian dollar, 65 billion U.S. dollar contract where France was supposed to be building nuclear, uh, not nuclear, but submarines, advanced submarines for Australia, not nuclear power submarines, which is what they wanted and got from the U.K. and the U.S. Here is a little press conference 
starting off, kicking off with Prime Minister Boris Johnson. This dropped just after we recorded the previous episode. We talked about this the last episode, and we said we touched on it. And so here is the actual presser, uh, starting with Prime Minister Boris Johnson. I'm delighted to, to join President Biden and uh, Prime Minister Morrison to announce that the United Kingdom, Australia, and the United States are creating a new trilateral defense partnership known as AUKUS, with the aim of working hand in glove to preserve security and stability in the Indo-Pacific. Because of China. China. We're opening a new chapter in our friendship. And the first task of this partnership will be to help Australia acquire a fleet of nuclear-powered submarines, emphasizing, of course, that the submarines in question will be powered by nuclear reactors, not armed with nuclear weapons. You, you got to make that point clear. You definitely don't want people to think that Australia might have a nuke. We've seen what they're doing in, in uh, New South Wales and Victoria with the insane lockdowns. Um, maybe it's wise that <laughs> Prime Minister Boris Johnson mentioned that. But uh, a nuclear submarine is an amazing feat having a nuclear reactor uh, powering a submarine, enabling it to stay under for virtually forever. Uh, quite uh, a technology, technological feat, an advancement that is going to be given to Australia. But as he said, the first step, the first step was really to cut France out of, as I said, a $90 billion Australian deal, which comes out to $65.7 billion US dollars. And France is not happy. They're very so much not happy. The, the foreign minister said that he felt, quote, stabbed in the back, unquote, over the unacceptable deal that will hurt French business and shut the French military out of a key initiative that the West is building in order to defend against China. He says, quote, this unilateral, brutal, unforeseeable decision really looks like what Mr. Trump was doing. Of course, of course, this is the, the, the classic. Everyone thought that this was how, be how Trump would pull out of Afghanistan. There would be a mess. That this is how Trump would just stab their, their partners and their allies in the back. When in reality, Trump's foreign policy was excellent. Trump, even though he had some, he had faults in not defending and, and standing by Saudi assets or Saudi uh, uh, alliances because of civil, these are, you know, Saudi's interests, not America's interests, as we covered in the previous episode. There are faults that he has when it comes to his foreign policy. But he did a, a much better job at defending and standing with allies versus what we're seeing right now with President Joe Biden. Now, this, this has a huge impact on the way the rest of the world will move, because if the reputation of America is so tarnished, people will begin to move towards China, to face towards China, to set up deals with them, to build out their own security. People are going to be looking to other places. It is already happening. It is already happening. Well, France is not happy. They even pulled two of their ambassadors, the ambassador to the US and the ambassador from Australia, saying, 
We need to at least have some sort of demonstration, some sort of theatrical show to demonstrate how displeased we are. Now, they didn't pull their ambassador from the UK because they said that, uh, well, the UK is just trying to get a, a gerrymander a, a great position, and they're always opportunists, so we, we don't even need to bother with pulling someone from the UK because this is how they've always been. But they want to send the message loud and clear. Some people think that the United States will throw them some some compromises, whether it's uh, deals, uh, other contracts, that no one quite knows. But they think it's going to be pretty short-lived be, before France's, or Paris, France, is back on the uh, bandwagon. Uh, France also had some pretty harsh things to say about uh, Australia, that Australia is still just the, the runner dog for America. Now, also in this presser, uh, a pretty, I mean, I guess it's not shocking, a pretty standard moment for President Biden. And I'm not bringing this up to make fun or mock our president, my president, maybe not your president. Uh, I'm not saying this to mock it, but it, this is the, the, the leader of a nation, the, the elected leader of a nation. It's not a, a king or a monarch where as they grow older, there's other people who are put in place, and this is just the way things go. This person was elected as the, the primary leader of the most powerful, if not, you know, maybe that's waning, but the most powerful nation in the world, forgetting the name of his closest ally, apparently, because they're striking this deal together, one of their closest allies, Prime Minister Morrison, forgetting his name in a, a press conference where there's two names, two names that you need to remember, two names, a 20-minute press conference. Uh, here's the clip. Thank you, Boris. And I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. <laughs> thank you very much, pal. Appreciate it, Mr. Prime Minister. I want to thank that fellow. I want to thank that fellow down under. Thank you very much. Thanks, pal. I mean, this is, this is the person leading America in the free world. Some, I hope someone steps in and does something because this is, this is, I don't find this funny. I'm not mocking. I don't think this is, you know, so hilarious. This is actually quite scary. It's scary to think that the person in charge can't remember someone's name. Now, there's many times I can't remember someone's name. There's many times that I forget names. I have momentary blips of my mind where I can't remember the right word. We all do. But the expectation would be when you're going into any meeting and you're presenting in front of millions of people worldwide with prime ministers of two of the world's superpowers as you announce a pretty groundbreaking deal that you would make sure you knew the name of the two people that you're speaking to. That, that should be somewhat of a given. Well, France, as I said, really not, really not happy. The French embassy, U.S. embassy, uh, the French embassy in the United States said the American choice to exclude a Euro ally 
and partner, such as France, from a structuring partnership with Australia at a time when we are facing unprecedented challenges in the Indo-Pacific region, shows a lack of coherence that France can only note and regret. France is really not happy, and this, it's not, this is not the way to treat allies. This is not the way to treat friends. But I, I guess it is, and it's not just France that is feeling the pain. Pakistan is also quite upset and feeling, uh, feeling the sting of being the scapegoat for America's failures in Afghanistan. To blame Pakistan for this debacle. This is the, the Prime Minister Imran Khan. In Afghanistan it is the most painful thing for us to listen to. Pakistan is the country that gave the greatest number of sacrifices to, for the American war in Afghanistan. True. Pakistan was asked to join this, uh, this uh, uh, invasion of Afghanistan by the Americans, become part of this coalition. When Pakistan had nothing to do with 9-11, there was no Pakistani involved in it. Al-Qaeda was in Afghanistan. There were no militant Taliban in Pakistan. We had no reason to enter the war. But unfortunately, our military dictator at the time, to get acceptability from the Americans, he took us into this war. Now, of course, there are a lot of criticisms, and a lot of them rightful criticisms, against Pakistan for funding the Taliban for uh, for housing them before to really create a petri dish to allow them to grow in. There's many people who are saying that Pakistan helped uh, fuel this, that Pakistan helped fight against the, the national resistance fronts in the Panjir province. So there's a lot of arguments of people saying, you know, pa Pakistan's a little bit complicit in what uh, the Taliban have done and are currently doing in the nation. But I have to say, the prime minister has a point. Pakistan right now is becoming the scapegoat of America. And again, an American ally, a NATO ally that fought alongside of us in, Pakistan, in, in Afghanistan, giving, I believe, 80,000 lives. Not to mention, as he goes on to say in this clip, which we're not going to play, but the, the number of people who lost limbs. And the number of, of attacks that they faced in Pakistan because of their siding and because of their engagement in this war that lasted the last 20 years. And other people are being considered and being thanked and being uh, applauded. But now here's Pakistan, another ally, being a scapegoat. This is just not a great look for foreign policy in America and across the world. Speaking of a great look and a pretty bad look, we talked about this, again, two episodes ago, episode uh, 256, about how the New York Times broke a story of how the, the, the last drone strike in Afghanistan that supposedly killed an ISIS member that was about to bomb the airport again, that we covered how that was completely not true. Well, here is the U.S. government finally uh, confirming everything that the New York Times said and admitting that they killed a completely innocent family. Here is General McKinsey 
taking responsibility uh, for this horrific, I mean, horrific accident. I can't even say accident, war crime, this horrific tragedy where this family, young kids, two, two-year-old kids, infants, seven-year-olds, four-year-olds lost their life in this needless attack, drone strike. Having thoroughly reviewed the findings of the investigation and the supporting analysis by interagency partners, I am now convinced that as many as 10 civilians, including up to seven children, were tragically killed in that strike. Moreover, we now assess that it is unlikely that the vehicle and those who died were associated with ISIS-K or were a direct threat to U.S. forces. I offer my profound condolences to the family and friends of those who were killed. This strike was taken in the earnest belief that it would prevent an imminent threat to our forces and the evacuees at the airport, but it was a mistake, and I offer my sincere apology. As the combatant commander, I am fully responsible for this strike and its tragic outcome. The heartbreaking thing is that a sincere apology, it doesn't, it doesn't fix the problem. It doesn't solve the problem. One article I was reading, the, the family says that no one's reached out to them. No one's talked to them. No one's apologized to them. Now, will that change in the coming days? I don't know. I, I certainly hope so. But what, what could be said? What could be done when you've lost multiple children? When you've lost brothers, young kids? Uh, there's, there's no way to, to, bring, to bring these innocent lives back. Not only innocent lives, but innocent lives that were working in an, and not that, it, I mean, it does matter, but not that it matters. But working in an NGO serving their people, getting food to people who were hungry. Uh, just un- unthinkable. And so I'm, I'm glad that the America is, at least in video, in speech, owning this and saying, yeah, we made a mistake. But, but so far, no one's resigned. And the rest of the press conference, they went on to explain, which I do understand why, why they would be doing this, went on to explain, this is the intelligence that we had. This is the situation that we're, was in. This is what happened just days before with the bombing that killed 13 service members and over 100, uh, was 170 um, civilians, some who, who died by gunfire after the bombing when soldiers w- thought that there could be possibly more suicide bombers in the group. Horrible. This was the situation that this, this drone strike took place in. So they went on to, to explain the, the intel that they had, why they went on to take this strike that turned out to be incredibly wrong, just, just completely 100% off base and wrong. Well, uh, transitioning a little bit to but still sticking on some of these these three main nations France which we've been talking about America of course and Australia all three of them uh, share something in common they are beginning to push uh, vaccine mandates vaccine passports uh, and mandating it for government 
workers and employees. Well, across all three, uh, they witnessed over this last week and weekend just incredibly crowded, just protests filling the streets in New York, in Australia, and in France. Here is a, a, a couple little clips from this. This is from New York. People shouting. They have waged war on our biology, and we're waging war back by saying... Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my goodness. This guy is just so intense. Here, Here's a, a clip from Australia. Just hundreds, hundreds of people in a street against a line of police officers. And the people just march forward and just just bum rush all the cops. It's just absolute mayhem, absolute chaos that is breaking out across the world when it comes to these, these lockdowns, when it comes to these government mandates, and when it comes to people's responses saying, no, we're, we're not going to carry our papers around with us and beep in everywhere we go. The same thing in France, a little bit much more peaceful of a picture with thousands of people crowding the street, slowly marching through the streets of France saying, we will not comply to your government mandate. And many people in America as well are saying that they will not comply and that is a, a violation of speech. And there's been a lot of comparisons that have been going around. How, how in, in Germany, during... Hitler's rise to power, there was, again, the pandemic of, of 1918, and we've discussed this on the show. We discussed uh, with some clips from Jordan Peterson how, how pandemics and how health crises tend to lead people towards more conservatism in their population, in, in their groups, because they are afraid they're staying in the groups of people that they know. And they're, they're pushing against anything that could potentially be a danger to them, anything that's new that is coming in. And so what they, what they saw in Germany was a, a big cleaning, a, a public health move to rid the city of rats and then to cleanse the, the factories and the employees of TB. People had to carry their health papers around with them. And then that moved on to more genocidal tendencies where the same language that was being used against viruses or against rats, calling them vermins, that was begun to be used against the Jews, calling the Jews vermins. And then that started the, uh, the attempt to extinct all the Jews and the gas chambers and the same gas that they used to purify these factories, they used in the gas chambers. To, to kill and, in their mind, purify Germany of the Jewish people to create a pure Aryan race. This is what people are afraid of when these, these lockdowns are happening, when the vaccine passports are being pushed on people. They are afraid of an overstep of power. They're afraid of an overstep of power. Yeah, that makes sense. In a post-truth society, 
where we have exchanged the truth for lies and reason for postmodern irrationality. The absurd finally makes sense. Today's Yeah, That Makes Sense segment is we're talking about the Pope and abortion a little bit more as uh, I've been embroiled in some conversations on the gram uh, about this. And the Pope said something that two things. He said something that I completely 100% agree with and I applaud and I love. And another thing which it can cause people to scratch their head and get confused and, and we'll we'll play this out. It's not actually a clip that we're going to be able to play for you, but I'm going to read an, an article on the 15th. This is from Reuters. On the 15th, Pope, Pope Francis said on Wednesday that abortion is murder even soon after conception. But he appeared to criticize some of the U.S. Catholic bishops for the dealing, for the way that they dealed with the U.S. President Joe Biden and his pro-choice position in a political rather than a pastoral way. So the two points we're going to cover, one, abortion is murder, as the Pope says, and we're going to break down why he's saying that, what he means by that. And then the second thing is, at what point does our personal beliefs or personal views, when does that come too political? When does that come of just, oh, you've gotten too far off. They've just become so political. They're just, everything is all politicized. We're going to be talking about that political spirit, if you will. If you, if you're not from a, a strong Christian background in Christendom, they frequently talk about two different, uh, spirits or two different ways a person could act and fall into the ditch on the side of the roads. One would be a religious spirit or becoming overtly religious and religiosity or a political spirit. And we're going to talk about both of those in the latter half of the segment. So stay tuned for that. But this is what the, the Pope said. He said, abortion is murder. Those who carry out abortions kill. At the third week of conception, often, even before the mother is aware of being pregnant, all the organs are already starting to develop. It is a human life, period. And this human life has to be respected. It is very clear. Scientifically, and I would add, biologically, it is a human life. At conception, it is a human life. When you look across the, the span of a baby in its mother's womb, there's no one place that you can point to say, ah, right there, life began. There's nothing special that happens between, between 12 weeks and 13 weeks. There's nothing special that happens between 39 and a half weeks and when the baby comes out the birthing canal. There's nothing special that happens in the life of, of that child outside of conception. At the moment of conception, it is a unique human being with 100% unique DNA to itself. It is a person. And that person's life should be defended. Now, the, the arguments that have been thrown my way, most of them are just trying to detract and distract from the, the, the real circumstances that 95% of pregnancies that end up in abortion in America, 95% are because of inconvenience. People will throw out the arguments of, of rape and incense, which is point 
5%, less than 1% come from of, of abortions happen because of rape and incense. And then the other thing that people frequently throw out is the medical excuses or exemptions of saying, well, medical needs. What if the mom and the baby are both going to die? Who, who are you going to save? And in the, in the case of the Texas law, if you're not familiar with the Texas law, Texas just passed a law saying that once the heart starts beating, once you can hear a heartbeat of a, a baby in the womb, which is around six weeks, then it is illegal to kill that baby. But there's an, a, a loophole, a big loophole, which is if there is some sort of medical reason that they would need to save the mother's life, then they're able to still perform an abortion. So all the arguments that are being thrown my way about this, it just, they're just, they're irrelevant arguments. They're trying to, they're trying to make a fringe case the majority. They're trying to argue for 95% of people aborting their, their children because of inconvenience or wrong timing. And they're trying to justify that by a small fringe of 0.5% when it comes to rape and incense incest, excuse me, and medical situations. And in both, at least in this Texas law, both are being provided for, whether I think that abortions should, should still be allowed or not. In the specific case that we're talking about, the Texas case, those are all being provided for right now with the current, with the current law. Another argument that has been made is, well, it would be horrible, and this is what Whoopi said on, uh, Whoopi Goldberg said on The View, it would be horrible if, you know, what happens when those people have the babies and the babies are then, are God forbid, killed. So, wait, so you're saying that we're, instead, we're going to victimize the victim even more, because if the baby is going to become a victim when they grow older and be killed, Let's kill them before they become a victim. So we're going to make them a victim. How, like, how does that work in any other area or space of life? No, instead, we need to defend the would-be victim and prosecute the victimizer. That is justice. That is how it works. But they have, there has been times throughout history, quite notable times, where it was easier to change the law to allow the victimized to remain victims. By making them less than human. Uh, I can think of a couple. Slavery. But that's been pretty much in the news since, I don't know, a long time. But definitely since 2020, it's been top, top line. Slavery. Reparations. I, I can think of some more examples. Oh. In the gulags. I can think of some more examples. Oh. In the gas chambers. The moment that you make someone, they're not. They're not really a person. They're not fully human. We can victimize them. It's okay. We'll make it legal. That is injustice. And the thought of creating a more just world by deleting people who would suffer injustice does not make the world just. So you can't just erase someone who's now, who, who's suffering who is being killed, and you erase them, and then it makes that go away. No, it's quite the opposite. You need to defend them. Well, the reason that we I unpack all of that is because the question that I, I ask, or that a lot of people are asking, and even here, the, the Pope is asking, and is saying 
at the end of this uh, piece by Reuters, he says, Pope Francis says, a pastor knows what to do at any moment, but if he leaves the pastoral process of the church, he immediately becomes a politician. So the question is, when does a a person of the cloth, whether it's a a pastor or whether it's a a bishop or whether it's an imam or whether it's just a person like you or me, when is it, when do we take a step past our personal, our quote unquote personal beliefs and step into what would be called a political spirit or becoming too political? You know, this show, it is very political. We talk a lot about political, geopolitical happenings in the world. But is it, is it politicized? Does it have a political spirit about it? Well, we have to say, what is a political spirit? What, what does that mean? Well, you can think of your workplace, maybe. Maybe you've experienced time in a workplace that was just supercharged with workplace politics. In order to get anything done, You had to get the right person on board and that right person had to be satisfied the right way. And then you had to make sure to go to this other team and and company and uh, or team within the company and get them on board. And you had to please so-and-so and and make sure so-and-so wasn't going to, you know, snipe your back from behind. You had to watch yourself. The politics of, of jockeying for position that has nothing to do with government that can happen in any situation that happens in any organization that can happen in a family especially extended families, there's always so many politics that go on. That is when something becomes a political spirit, when people are jockeying for position and trying to manipulate and, and, and control the situation and mur- make the muddy the waters, murky the situation so that they can get their desired outcome. That is a political spirit. The other spirit that is often warned about in, in Christendom is, is a religious spirit. And a religious spirit is normally referred to uh, when someone is very hypocritical or they're taking the, the law, they're taking the rules that people are meant to follow, and they're focusing on the nitty-gritty. They're, they're honing down on these minute details, minutias, that they then hold over other people. Now, we, we can see this Again, not just in religious organizations, but organizations that often have a lot of religious overtones, like critical race theory, or like the SJWs, or like many cults, where there's such a religiosity that there's the right things to say, the right things to do, and if you step one way off, if you say one thing the wrong way, you immediately get doxxed, you immediately get canceled, they're digging up your past to make sure that your, your past is squeaky clean, while at the same time, it is seething with hypocrisy. It's seething with double standards. And then if you ever try to leave one of these groups that are, are just so uh, bound up in, in re- religiosity, and again, it doesn't have to be one of the, a major religion. This can be within groups. There can be just such uh, stringent, hard religiosity around whatever principles. You look at the green movement, it's very, very religious. If you look at, at, at socialism or communism, it's very religious in its, its ideology and the way that that plays out. Well, the, the president, uh, actually Jen Psaki, weighed in for the president on just this question on when is 
President Biden's politics or your politics or my politics? When do, do our beliefs, when should those enter into that political realm or should we just divorce it altogether? Uh, well, Joe Biden is a strong man of faith. Um, and as he noted just a couple of days ago, it's personal. Uh, he goes to church, as you know, uh, nearly every weekend. He even went when we were on our overseas trip. Um, but it's personal to him. He doesn't see it through a political prism. And we're not going to comment otherwise on the inner workings of the Catholic Church. So she goes on to say it's personal about five or ten more times. It's personal, it's personal, it's personal. But really, it's, and she's saying specifically, his faith is personal. He's not going to bring his faith into the way that he views politics. When that is absolutely not true. And the reason that I say that, maybe he's not bringing his Catholic faith in, but he's bringing his belief system in. The way that he believes that the world is, should be placed together, just like you and I. We bring our belief system into every single interaction that we have, in your interaction with your family, your interaction in your workplace, you're actually bringing the real belief system that you truly, that you, that's encoded in your, yourself, that's encoded in your belief system, encoded in the way that you live. We bring that into every single interaction, whether we like it or not. And so here is Jen Psaki saying, well, his, his religious belief system, well, that's personal. He doesn't bring that into the political realm because the, the, and people in the West really like to do this. It's not so much in the rest of the world. The rest of the, most of the world, they see things very much integrated in Islam or in Buddhism or Hinduism. They see things very much integrated, which is, what do you mean? There's no, there's no separation. It's, it's all one. It's, we're just all, it's, it's just is. We're not, we're not going to divide it up and put everything in little compartment boxes all over the place. It's just all the same. We're, it's all integrated in one holistic thing. But in the West, we like to separate it up and we can control it and others better. We're like, well, you know, those are your beliefs over there. Keep those in those corners. But my beliefs, my political beliefs that are secular, that secular worldview, ah, that's the real religion of the day. That's the real religion of the West. And we can push that religion all that we want. And we can push the morals or the lack of morality in those, in that worldview, all that we want onto people as much as we want. Why? Because we say that it's not religious when really it truly is religious. So if you're asking yourself, to what extent should I engage? To what extent should I keep my personal beliefs personal? Well, as long as you're not infringing, enforcing, and controlling someone else with your personal beliefs, which that would be a religious spirit, which is exactly what we're seeing with CRT. Again, they would say, well, no, it's not. This is, this is just, I don't, I don't know what they'd say. But they're working to control people through fear and manipulation. And that is, that is a religious spirit. So you don't want to step into that to control other people from your beliefs. But when it comes to things, issues like abortion or issues that are, are, are strike at the very core of morality, 
where it's not like, well, you know, you might like a couple different things. That's fine. But when it comes to real core issues, we should step up. We should speak out, especially when it involves someone else's innocent life being taken. When it comes to abortion, it is a, a, a procedure that has two people involved, the mother and the child. And one person walks out of that room dismembered or doesn't walk out of that. One person walks out of the room and the other person ends up dismembered. That is not something that is subjective. That is not something that is being imposed on other people. That is protecting innocent, innocent lives. And that is our responsibility to uphold that moral code, whoever you are, wherever you're from. That is our responsibility to stand on truth, the truth that a human being is a human being scientifically biologically, at conception, and those rights to life begins at conception. Because if we, if we lose that, then what is to say that euthanasia becomes okay tomorrow? Or that infanticide at three, three months after birth, six months after birth, where, where does the limit end? If we want to follow the science, then let's actually follow the science. Well, this show is brought to you by you. This is a value for value podcast. I want to thank you for listening. <laughs> I forgot last episode, I said something absolutely ridiculous in this segment of the show. If you haven't listened to it, go back. I just totally stuck my foot in my mouth, but I just want to thank you for being here. I truly appreciate it. This is a value for value podcast. Thousands of people listen to the show every month to help them understand the, the movings of the world and how to see the world and own their future. So you can help yourself and others by giving value to the show back to the show in the value that you receive it. And you can do that by visiting lucasscrobot.com where you can give your hard cold fiat or you can get a podcast 2.0 certified app where you can stream Bitcoin to me, directly to me as you listen. One sat sats and two sats, one cents and two cents per minute or as much as you like. And what I like about that when I listen with, uh, with podcast 2.0 apps like that, like Podfriend or Breeze, is that you can boost as you listen, which really makes it feel much more interactive and engaging for me. Don't go away. We will be right back with our closing Weaver and Loom segment. Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, a part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives. And today's wisdom bit comes from Plato. He writes, the price good men pay for indifference to public affairs is to be ruled by evil men. This is one of the reasons that we have the show. This is probably a reason that you listen to the show, and it's definitely a reason that I put hours a week into this show, is because I do not want to be ruled by evil men. And I know that the price that good men and women like you and I pay for our indifference, for not caring, for not paying attention to public affairs, is to be ruled by evil men. Now, to what extent should we become consumed with fear, consumed? 
with clickbait, 24-hour news cycle headlines, making sure we, we, we read everything and listen to everything. No, it's pointless. It's worthless. It would consume our lives. But we should be paying attention to the community around us and building up the community around us and the culture around us so that we can have a community that we can walk forward with. And those, and that is the, the public affairs that Plato speaks of. I'm sure he speaks of, of the political affairs as well. But we can start by doing something locally, by building our community locally. And one way that you can do that is by sharing this podcast with a friend, a coworker, a spouse, someone that you like to debate with. And I like to share podcasts by texting one individual or two individuals and then having a conversation about it rather than just sending it out into the social media world. Another way that you can share this is just by having a conversation about some of these topics with other people and asking, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about what's happening around right now with the Australian AUKUS deal? What do you think about what's happening with China? What do you think about what's happening with this debate that's going on right now with abortion? Bring up these subjects, talk about it with people around you, and that will strengthen you and it will strengthen your community. It will strengthen them to be able to see the world more clearly because if we can see the world clearly, then we can navigate it. And if we can navigate our life and our relationships, we will be able to uncover our purpose and that will enable us to own our future.